Well, good morning. So over the past several weeks, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but ESPN has released a 10-part documentary called The Last Dance. It focuses on the Chicago Bulls, particularly Michael Jordan and his career with the team and the Bulls' 97-98 championship season. Uh, The documentary does a lot of things, but perhaps chief among them, I think, is that it highlights Jordan's greatness on the basketball court. He really was amazing at his craft. Uh, Six uh, NBA championships, six NBA finals, most valuable player awards, five NBA Most Valuable Player Awards, and more. And let's also not forget, at one point, in a high-stakes game of basketball, he even rescued Bugs Bunny and friends from a group of aliens. If you don't get that, that's from a great movie called Space Jam that he starred in. But joking aside, Jordan is arguably, uh, some would say, most definitely, without question, the best basketball player who's ever lived. Why do we care about things like that? Why are so many, including me, captivated by watching Michael Jordan play and excel at basketball? Or any athlete succeed in their craft for that matter? Well, I think it could be because that in some sense, we are drawn to greatness. We love to see excellence on display. Now, on its own, I don't think that's necessarily an issue. The problem comes, though, when we marvel at greatness in a person and stop there. When we see excellence and either worship the person displaying it or the things that that person represents and fail to allow what we're seeing to draw our attention and praise to God, the creator, the only one who is truly great, truly marvelous, truly worthy of worship. I read a good article yesterday that explores this in relation to Michael Jordan. It's written by a guy named Paul Putz, and in it, he makes this point. He says, the problem isn't so much that I might make Jordan into God. The problem instead is the subtle ways that little g gods come disguised as Jordan. It's the cultural values and priorities that Jordan embodies and represents. When I celebrate Jordan, am I more drawn to the gods of success and fame and winning or to God the creator? We certainly need to ask questions like that of ourselves and make sure that we aren't worshiping created things or people instead of the creator. We, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, who is absolutely unparalleled in his greatness and majesty. And our passage this morning, Colossians 1, 15 to 23, guides us uh, wonderfully toward that end. Here, the Apostle Paul, uh, who's writing um, so, somewhere around uh, AD 60, 61, to a group of Christians at Colossae, he he puts the spotlight rightly on Jesus. In fact, many think that verses 15 to 20 of our passage is a hymn or a poem about Christ, either one that already existed and Paul took and adapted for the letter or one that Paul wrote himself. But regardless, Christ is on glorious display here, particularly his supremacy and his sufficiency over all are plain to see. 
Now, if you're new with us or weren't able to join us virtually the last two weeks, we're currently in an eight-week series in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians called Christ Over All. And by that, I mean two things. One, Jesus Christ is supreme. He is king over all. All things were created through him and for him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is above all earthly powers, and by God's grace, he rules over us. He's not just king, but he's our king. And that means that Jesus calls the shots. We must bring our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit and into greater and greater conformity to his will. So Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is also sufficient. He is over and above all supposed means to advance us in our faith and bring us near to God. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all we need. Adding anything to him takes away from him. If we want to know God, if we want to be at peace with him, if we want to grow in our obedience to him, all we need is Jesus. We don't need to look elsewhere. In fact, it would be spiritually disastrous to do so. The recipients of Paul's letter, the Christians at Colossae, they needed to hear these things. They had received and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. A man named Epaphras, who was a native of Colossae, had shared it with them, and the gospel was bearing fruit among them. But it seems like they were also being confronted by false teaching. The content of this teaching and its source aren't entirely clear, but it seems like the Colossians may have been facing a type of syncretistic faith where different elements of more than one belief are combined or fused together. Uh, here, that could have been Judaism, an early form of Gnosticism that promoted a secret knowledge, or mystical elements from local folk religions. It's possible that the Christians at Colossae had someone in their midst who was telling them that they had an incomplete faith, that in order to experience true fullness, to really know God and be close to him and be pleasing to him, and possibly even to avoid and be protected from evil spiritual beings, they needed to do extra things, like observe Old Testament dietary laws and holidays, like practice asceticism, deprive themselves of certain things in order to draw closer to God, and like either worship angels or strive to arrive at a spiritual plane where they worship God with angels. These things, it may have been said, were necessary for the Colossians to adopt. Now, Paul's going to address and, con and confront and correct that false teaching in chapter two, but he also combats it here in Colossians 1, 15 to 23. One commentator, uh, R.C. Lucas, from whom I adapted the title of this message, sets the stage like this. He says, It is Paul's wisdom to set before the church, right at the start of the letter, an exposition of the supremacy of Christ, or as we might put it, his lordship. This positive instruction, once its implications have been grasped in terms of the sufficiency of Christ, will be the Colossians' best protection against error. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. Christ, as our series title says, is over all. 
The Colossians needed to know that, and so do we. And so that said, let's dive into our text for this morning. Uh, As we work through this passage, we'll focus on three points. Christ and creation, Christ and redemption, and Christ and you. First, Christ and creation. Look with me at verses 15 to 17 of Colossians chapter one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These, ver- these verses here, they raise a number of questions, but the first one we should ask is, who's Paul talking about? Did you notice that in those verses, he didn't mention anybody by name? Well, for the answer to that, we need to go back to verses 13 and 14. There, Paul says, he, the father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's the son, it's Jesus Christ who is in view here, and Paul rightly gives him the highest praise. He is the image of the invisible God. That doesn't mean that the Son is lesser than the Father. It means that the Son shows us perfectly what the Father is like. John 1.18 puts it this way. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus makes the invisible God known to man. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God, and Jesus shows us what God is like. But there's more. Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus uh, was the first created being, that he's not God? Some people in history have argued that. One of the most famous is a man named Arius who lived in the third and fourth centuries. He's famous for saying, there was a time when he, meaning Jesus, was not. Now, thankfully, Arius' teaching, known as Arianism, was strongly condemned in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. But people in our time argue this too. One of the prime examples being Jehovah's Witnesses. On their website, they say, he, Jesus, was God's first creation. Is that what Paul's saying? That Jesus was the first being made by God? Absolutely not. When Paul says firstborn, his meaning may be more along the lines of the psalmists in Psalm 89, 27. Speaking of David, he says, and I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, at this time, the firstborn son in the family was the father's heir. So being the firstborn came with an inheritance. And in the case of the son of a king, it came with the right to rule. Psalm 89, 27, and possibly Colossians 1, 15, pick up on that and apply it to David and Jesus. David wasn't the first king in Israel's history. David wasn't even the firstborn son in his own family. 
but God made him the firstborn, meaning he is the highest of the kings of the earth. Likewise, Jesus isn't literally God's firstborn son or creation. Rather, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning that he is the heir of all things. He is supreme over, he is the ruler of all creation. And why is that true? Well, verse 16, I think it gives us three reasons. Number one, for by him or in him, all things were created. Listen to one commentator, David Garland, unpack this. He says, since the last part of this verse states that all things have been created through him, it is unlikely that the apostle apostle intends to repeat the idea of Christ's agency in creation. The first prepositional phrase maintains Christ was the location from whom all came into being and in whom all creation is contained. So he's arguing there that a better translation is in him as opposed to by him. Again, he says, the first prepositional phrase maintains Christ was the location from whom all came into being and in whom all creation is contained. Number two, all things were created through him. Jesus is the agent of creation. It was through him that God created every single thing in this universe. And three, all things were created for him. Everything that exists is for the glory, honor, and praise of Jesus. All things were created in him, through him, and for him. This includes things, as verse 16 says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those four things, they're likely referring to invisible spiritual beings. So whether you can see it or whether you can't, whether it's material or whether it is spiritual, it was made by Jesus, through Jesus, in Jesus. As one commentator, Sam Storms, helpfully describes it, he says, Christ is the architect that's in him. Christ is the artisan that's through him. And Christ is the aim that is for him of all creation. Architect, artisan, aim. Or in the words of Abraham Kuyper, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If that's not amazing enough, Paul continues in verse 17, he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Were Jesus to lift a finger, Were he to have a single momentary lapse in power, the entire universe would unravel and fall into chaos. Step back for a moment now and think about how necessary and encouraging this message could have been for the Colossians. Remember that based on Paul's letter, it seems that they were being told that in order to be protected from evil spiritual powers and in order to experience fullness, to really, truly know God, they needed to pursue additional acts of piety, like practicing self-denial, observing certain food laws and religious holidays, and either worshiping angels or seeking to worship God like angels. Paul's pushing back on that, and in the strongest of terms. There's no pious work that the Colossians need to put on in order to truly know God. 
They know Jesus, which means they know God. They know the one in whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. They know the one who sustains the universe and who can protect them and sustain them in their faith. Also, it's possible that in this passage, Paul is alluding to Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. We're not gonna read those uh, verses now, but in that passage, wisdom is described as being with God before and during creation. Uh, Christopher Beetham explains that and he unpacks its significance like this. Wisdom was with God, acting as his agent in the creation of the world, weaving into it a moral and wise order. As the one who existed eternally with God, wisdom's experiential sagacity and resourcefulness matches God's own. Colossians claims that this literary personification of, an ancient, of ancient Jewish literature has found its ultimate expression in the person of the eternal Son become flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Colossians 2, 3. There is therefore no need to look elsewhere for knowledge of God. Christ is the definitive and final revelation of God, giving believers all that they need in order to know God. This is what Jesus does for us. This is who he is. Further, there's no spiritual power that the Colossians need to fear or worship. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities in verse 16 uh, likely refer to, to, to spiritual beings. And if that's the case, what Paul's doing here is he is reorienting the Colossians' worldview. They don't need to fear evil spiritual powers. Now, Jesus didn't create them evil, but he did create them, and he does sustain them, and they do exist for his glory. And the Colossians wouldn't need uh, good spiritual beings either to get closer to God. Jesus is supreme over them too. Jesus is all the Colossians need to know and enjoy and pursue God. To sum this up, uh, R.C. Lucas, he puts it like this. He says, whoever takes seriously the true Christ cannot doubt his adequacy to supply all his people's needs and bring them to their goal. How strange if he who is sufficient to sustain a universe should be insufficient in power for the little church at Colossae. Oh, how we need to hear and believe that. To borrow the phrase, how strange if he who is sufficient to sustain a universe should be insufficient in power for Bethel Baptist Church in Wilmington, Delaware. This all means at least a few things for us. This means that right now, the time that we are in, COVID-19 is not beyond Jesus's jurisdiction. He is not surprised by this. He is not panicking over this. We don't know all Jesus's purposes in this, and we certainly can and should lament the pain and the loss that this virus brings. But we can know that Christ is using this for his glory and for our everlasting good. We can know that ultimately, sickness and death are the results of the fall, and one day, Christ will return and he will put those things where they belong in their grave, gone forever. Now, this also means that those of us who are trusting Jesus have nothing to fear. 
Jesus is the sovereign, supreme, sufficient creator and sustainer of all that is. Nothing can separate us from him, nothing. This also means that if you are trusting Jesus for your salvation, he's all you need. There is nothing, no extra biblical rule, no act of piety, nothing that you need to add to your faith in Christ in order to know God. If you are his, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus to save you, then you know God. You know him. You have in Christ everything necessary to guard you, keep you, and sustain you in your faith. God has done great things for us in Jesus. So let's praise and worship Jesus this morning. He is the supreme, sufficient Lord and creator and sustainer and goal of all creation. And amazingly, that's not all. So look with me at our second point now, Christ and redemption. This is verses 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in verses 15 to 17, Paul emphasizes that Jesus is Lord of creation. Now in verses 18 to 20, he narrows his focus and puts the spotlight on Jesus' relationship to redemption. And he starts by saying that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Just as he is supreme over creation, Christ is supreme over the church, over the new creation, over everyone who has trusted Jesus, who is trusting him for their salvation. Jesus calls the shots. Jesus sets the agenda. Jesus is king. Jesus is the lifeblood and sustainer of the church. And further, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, Jesus was not the first person to ever be raised from the dead. But Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead with a glorified body never to die again. And Jesus is the first to conquer sin and death, guaranteeing that all those who trust in him will also be raised to life everlasting when he returns. Because those things are true, Christ Jesus is preeminent. He is superior. And Paul goes on in verse 19. He says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God once dwelled with his people through the tabernacle and then later the temple. Paul may be alluding to that and emphasizing that God dwelled with his people in Christ. This is a clear reference to Jesus's divinity. The ESV study Bible explains it well. Jesus not only bears God's glory, but all that God is also dwells in him. He possesses the wisdom, power, spirit, and glory of God. To say that all this divine fullness dwells in Jesus is to say that he is fully God. Jesus is indeed fully God, fully man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. C.S. Lewis got it right when he wrote in the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia series, once in our world, 
a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. But Christ didn't simply come to earth. He came to earth on a rescue mission to save his people from their sins, to redeem them from sin and death, and to reconcile all things to himself. And so Paul continues in verse 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden had disastrous consequences. All of humanity was separated from its creator. The creation itself, as Paul says in Romans 8.20, was subjected to futility. Jesus came to reverse that. He displayed his power and the beginnings of reversal in his miracles. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead. But not only that, he lived a perfect life of obedience to God where all of us have failed. He never sinned, not in thought, not in word, not in deed. And on the cross, he died for the sins of everyone who would trust him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead victorious. And Paul says here in Colossians that through Jesus, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, God will reconcile all things to himself. That doesn't mean that everyone will eventually be saved and reconciled to God. Paul is not teaching universalism here. No, Paul may mean here that ultimately, not only will creation be redeemed, but also everyone, willingly or begrudgingly, will recognize Jesus as king, as the superior, preeminent Lord that he is. One commentator, David Garland, explains this helpfully. He says, the pacification of all things, human and non-human, does not mean that the enemies of God are won over in obedience to him. It is not a peace among equals, but one forcefully brought about by a triumphant victor. When Paul promises that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and confess that he is Lord, he does that in Philippians 2, he means that every being will finally acknowledge who is Lord of the universe. The unconditional surrender of the Axis troops in World War II brought about a cessation to the hostilities but war crimes tribunals still awaited those who perpetrated evil. If you're watching this morning, and if you aren't trusting Jesus, know that he offers you forgiveness and peace with God and eternal life today. He's not asking you to clean up your act before you come to him. He's not asking you to check off a list of spiritual to-dos. No, he's asking you to humbly acknowledge your sin, humbly acknowledge your need of him, and to lay down your weapons, to submit to him as king, trusting him to save you. Jesus is ready, he is willing, and he is able to do that. So please, let me ask you, if you aren't trusting Christ, trust him today. Receive him in faith this morning. Receive the free gift of reconciliation that he offers. If you're wrestling with that, if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, 
If you have questions about Christianity, please know that I would love to talk more with you. Uh, feel free, you can, you can reach me by sending us a message on Facebook, uh, or you can contact us through the church office, and you can find that information on our website. I would be glad to follow up with you and, and continue the conversation. Now again, think about how this would have been instructive for the Colossians. What Paul's teaching here, for one, it puts any false teachers in their rightful place. They don't have authority over the church. Jesus does. They don't have the right to demand that others follow them and their teaching. Jesus is the head of the church. It is in him that Christians are sustained and nourished. We need to hear that too, Bethel. Jesus is our head, not me, not Pastor Chris, not the elders, not all of us collectively, but Jesus and Jesus alone. He is Lord of this church. That means that everything we are and everything we do must be founded on him, must be directed for him, for his glory. It must all have him at the center. To quote our purpose statement, we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. It's about Jesus and his glory. Now further, Paul's teaching would have addressed the fullness teaching possibly going on at Colossae. Remember that false teachers were likely telling the Colossians that in order to possess fullness, in order to truly know God, they not only needed Jesus, but they also needed to draw near to God through additional acts of piety, like self-denial, observing food regulations and religious holidays and practicing the worship of angels. Paul is turning that on its head. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that if the Colossians are united to Christ, they have everything they need to know and draw near to God. Nothing else is necessary to add to Jesus. He and he alone truly brings sinners to God. I hope that that's a comfort to you this morning. If you are united to Christ by faith, then you know God. Then there is nothing else that you need to bring you near to God. No extra biblical rules, no box checking. Christ is all you need, and in him, you have everything necessary to sustain you, to keep you, to nourish you in your faith. And one day, when he returns to finally forever put everything to rights, you will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was, and you will dwell with him and all the saints for all eternity. If we're trusting in Jesus, our future is so, so bright. So look to Christ, trust him, cling to him, delight in him, praise him, and pursue him more and more, celebrating that he is your head, he is your peace, he is your reconciliation, he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, that brings us to our last point, Christ and you. This is verses 21 to 23. Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In verses 15 to 17, Paul explained that Jesus is Lord of creation. In verses 18 to 20, he narrowed his focus and emphasized that Jesus is the Lord of redemption. He's the head of the church, the new creation. Now in verses 21 to 23, he narrows his focus in a sense even more to to Christ and the individual saints at Colossae. And as he does, he addresses their past, their present, and their future in Christ. Their past was dark. They were, the text says, once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. They were not just separated from God, but they were opposed to him, doing evil deeds. They were rebels through and through. That describes all of us apart from Jesus. But thankfully, God intervened. Jesus took on flesh and he, fully God and fully man, died for their sins in order to reconcile them to God. Think about how awesome that is. They had sinned against God. They were the offenders. But God, not them, stepped in to save. The offended party absorbed the punishment in order to save the offender. That is mercy and grace on full rich display. And because Jesus did that for them, their present position is now reconciled. They are at peace with God. And why did Jesus do that for them? In order to one day in the future present them, his bride, his church, holy, blameless, and above reproach before God, if they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard. So if, what does Paul mean by that? Is he saying that the Colossians are reconciled to God, but they they can ultimately lose that status if they abandon the gospel? Is he saying we can lose our salvation? No, his meaning is far different from that. If you have turned away from your sin and trusted Jesus to save you, you have been reconciled to God. Your position in Christ can never, will never change. By grace, through faith in Jesus, you've been justified in God's sight. You have entered the courtroom of the judge of all the earth and been declared not guilty, but righteous instead. That's what justification is. That occurred because Christ went in that courtroom before you and he took your guilty verdict on himself and paid your debt. Your slate is clean. Your sins are forgiven. You are righteous in Christ, permanently, forever reconciled to God. That's what Paul can say in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, none. But presently, you and I, we still struggle with sin. We were, we are, at one and the same time, both righteous and sinful. That doesn't mean our salvation can be lost. It can't. It means that while we are right with God, we haven't yet been made fully like Jesus. 
we're still being sanctified or made holy. And that work won't be completed until Jesus returns and gives us perfect, glorified bodies and presents us holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. But rest assured, it will be completed. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will preserve you. Jesus will sustain you. And the Holy Spirit will work in you all the way to the end. You will, if you're trusting Jesus, if you've turned from your sins and embraced them in faith, you will make it all the way home. And so if you depart from Christ, if you abandon the gospel, if you claim Jesus and then turn away, it doesn't mean that you lost your salvation. It means that you were never really reconciled to God in the first place. It's like what John describes in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what does all that mean for Paul's if statement in verse 23? It means, I think, that it functions like a guardrail. It's a loving reminder for the Christians at Colossae and for us to keep trusting Jesus and him alone and to never add anything to him in order to know God. Like we said a couple weeks ago, and as other people have pointed out, this is the mathematics of the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Now, for anyone here who isn't trusting Jesus to save them from their sins again, please know that he is ready, willing, and able to save you today. All that he asks is that you come to him with nothing. Come to him. Confess your sin and rebellion against him. Confess your need of him and your inability to save yourself and trust Jesus to save you and make you right with God. Now, for those of us who are confessing Christ, but maybe flippant with sin or tempted to believe that it's our works that make us right with God or tempted to look at something other than Jesus to enhance our spirituality, we need to hear the warning here. The warning that you will be presented holy before God if you continue in the faith. It's a loving guardrail. It's a course correct. Now, for those of us who are trusting Jesus, but maybe we're fearful that we're not gonna make it. Maybe we're tempted to believe that God doesn't love us. Or maybe we're tempted to think that we have to do something in order to remain in God's good graces because he's just so unhappy with us. We need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus has reconciled us to God. We have Christ as our savior, our king, our brother. We have God as our Father. We have the Spirit as our Helper. We have been reconciled to God by grace and through faith in Jesus, and Jesus can and he will sustain us and keep us all the way to the end. John Newton has two of my favorite quotes along these lines. I want to read them both to you. He says, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient 
I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then the second quote from him, he says, fear not, only believe, wait, and pray. Expect not all, expect not all at once. A Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak the progress of which is hardly perceptible, but which in time becomes a great deep-rooted tree. So Jesus is our supreme, sufficient King, Creator, and Savior. And He is worthy of all of our worship and praise. Now earlier I said that some think Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is a hymn or a poem that Paul either incorporated into the letter or wrote himself. And I don't want to make too much of that, but I think that there's something instructive for us there. Martin Luther once said, the devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. Music is a gift and a grace of God, not an invention of men. Thus it drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. Then one forgets all wrath and purity and other devices. I think he's onto something here. Yes, let's fight unbelief and sin and the devil first and foremost supremely through God's word. God's word is our authority. Let's also follow Paul's example here. Uh, if this is indeed a hymn or a poem, and, and even if it's not just in thankful praise, let's follow the example and strike out at falsehood and unbelief through song. We have all the reason to praise and give Jesus glory. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus, by God's grace, is ours. So we're going to close with a song, but before we do, let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for you that in Christ you have made yourself known to us. Thank you for sending Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to, to live a perfect life on our behalf and die in our place and rise from the dead victorious over sin and death. So Father, we come praising Jesus today. Thank you for Christ. Jesus is our King. He is our Savior. We love him. Lord, I pray that you would teach us more and more and more to, to love Jesus, to behold him, to like, draw us to him, cause us to adore him in greater and greater ways. This week, help us to praise Jesus more than we were this past week. Grow us in our faith. Protect us Sustain us, keep us, 
as we know you will in Christ. Father, so thank you for what you have done for us. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we praise our great savior and king Jesus this morning. And we pray all of this in his great name, amen.